0: At this time, we're going to take our Bible, so we invite you to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn with me over to the book of Ephesians once again. We're going to continue our study of Ephesians, and we find ourselves in verses 7 through 10 this morning. The title of today's sermon is God's Plan for the Ages. God's Plan for the Ages. Now, before my family moved out here to Yucca Valley, we lived in Santa Clarita, which is about two and a half hours west of here. And uh, we lived there because my wife and I met at the Master's University, and later I went on to the Master's Seminary. So we were there for a particular season of time, actually about 10 years of time, while we were doing all of our education and ministry training before coming out here to serve you and be here with you in Yucca Valley. And Santa Clarita Clarita was a very unique and a very special place. It was a master-planned community. So as they would expand the city... Uh, they had already planned out ahead of time where they were gonna put all the different housing tracks and interspersed between those different housing tracks were parks and schools, shopping centers and gyms and everything seemed to be organized so cleanly and thought out very well ahead of time. You can drive down the streets and you would see trees that were lining up and down all over the place and industrial centers were strategically placed by the freeways so that it was easy off and easy on as the shipping was taking place and all the free the freight and the industry was going on and there was even one of my favorite parts of the city was that there was a series of bike paths or running trails that were called paseos and you could literally get from one side of town to the other without having to use any crosswalks or intersections but These trails would meander through town and they often went through neighborhoods and they bypassed the busy roads and they were very pretty and quiet and scenic and they connected the city with other arteries besides just the roads that we often think of in a city. But there was one type of building that seemed to be left out in the master plan as they were putting together and expanding the city of Santa Clarita. And those were the churches. And we would have this conversation sometimes at our staff meetings at church of how difficult it was for church plants to find places to meet and to gather. They didn't build churches into the master plan for a community that would be hundreds of thousands of people, amazingly enough. And I think that it's almost a parable for our day of how uh, even those who enjoy wealth and success and growth, and they've got soccer leagues and they've got restaurants, but they have very little time or space for God. And yet this morning as we come to Ephesians chapter one, we see that God has a master plan as well. God has a master plan, not just for a community, but he has a master plan for the universe, and he has a master plan for all of time, past, present, and future. And in contrast to maybe many modern master plan communities, God is not forgotten about in this plan. The church is not forgotten about in this plan, but God is at the very center through his son Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, that we are at the center of God's master plan for creation and for all of time. Paul describes this plan here in Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read, and I've provided there in your worship guide this morning verses 3 through 10, and then we'll focus in on verses 7 through 10 because we've already done some study of 3 through 6. But let me start in three, uh, chapter 1, verse 3, once again, as we see this prayer of blessing of beatitude and gratitude to God and all the blessings that are ours in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen? Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Father, we thank you for this passage and we thank you that you have a master plan for your universe and for your people. Lord, all flesh is like grass and if there is one lesson that we should take away from 2020, it is that life is short and eternity is long and we are to view time in light of eternity. Lord, teach us to number our days that we would fear you and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. We praise you and we ask that you would open our eyes and give us understanding and insight today from your word in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, we have been considering a number of blessings that are ours in Christ Jesus in this passage. And today we will focus on verses 7 through 10, as I mentioned already, where we see blessings like redemption, blessings like forgiveness, and blessings that we are part of some grand, overarching design that God has for his creation. Now, verses 7 through 10 that we're going to look at, begin and end, they're sort of bracketed or bookended with the phrase, in him. You see that at verse 7? In him, we have redemption. And then down in verse 10, the phrase creeps earlier in the sentence just to make it more readable. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. But in the Greek, it's actually to unite all things in heaven and things on earth in him. So this whole section here is really bracketed by the term in him what do we mean by that well it's talking about Christ that it is in Christ and through Christ that we have redemption and forgiveness and that everything is one day going to be united together and find its identity and its purpose and its joy and its peace in Christ alone it's in him even last week Alex took us to John chapter 14 and Jesus said I am the way I am the truth I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right? If that's the case, then everything is being united together and God is recreating his universe and pushing back the effects of the fall and bringing us to himself in Christ. He is the way. And Paul makes that point over and over again, that phrase, in him, in him. We talked a number of weeks ago about the blessed doctrine of the union that we have with Christ and that we are called to abide in him and walk with him. Friend, you are never alone. If you've trusted in Jesus as your savior and your lord, then he is in you and you are in him. He is the vine, you're the branch, and apart from him you can't do much. Is that what it says? No, it says apart from him You can do nothing. There's nothing that you and I can do apart from our union with Christ. There's not a little bit of redemption outside of Christ. There's not a little bit of forgiveness outside of Christ. There's no redemption or forgiveness or plan apart from Christ. Everything is united in Him. Our outline this morning is two simple points. First, we're going to see God's generous gift, and then we're going to consider His perfect plan. Let's start by looking at God's generous gift. Once again, As we come to these verses, we see how generous and kind God has been to us. He just continues to heap blessing upon blessing upon blessing in one of the longest sentences in all the Bible and found anywhere in the ancient Greek language. Paul just keeps recounting the blessings and the kindness of God. If you are discouraged, if you are downcast, go back to Ephesians 1 and look at what God has done for you. He has proven his love and his faithfulness, and we can take courage with his generous gift. This gift is described in verse seven, where Paul says, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now, redemption is the payment of a price for deliverance. Redemption is the payment of a price for deliverance. Or you can think of it as the price that would be paid to release a person from bondage. In a hostage situation... We call this a ransom, where someone is is captured, and then they're held captive, and they're in bondage, and the only way they can be released is if someone pays that ransom price. That person is being redeemed or bought back through the cost of the ransom. We often hear the term redemption today when we think about recycling our soda cans, right? You go to the store, you buy some soda cans— and then after you finish them all, you take them back and they redeem them from you. They're buying them back from you. The funny thing is that they're buying your cans with money that you already paid them for. So when you pay that CRV, you're paying in advance so that when you end up drinking the fluids and taking them back, they're giving you your money back. You're actually getting your own money back when you do that. But if you don't recycle, then you lose out and they get the money and they get to keep it, right? Well, in Old Testament times, one of the first appearances of the word redemption was when God promised to deliver his people out of Egypt. And what were God's people doing in Egypt? They were in captivity. They were in bondage. They started out, it was an act of God's mercy to take them away from the famine. Joseph established his family there. Uh, Of course, he got there because he was sold into slavery, but the Lord had other plans and ended up putting him second in command of the entire superpower of Egypt 400 years go by and it says that a Pharaoh arose who did not remember the story of Joseph and and he put the people of Israel into hard labor and they had turned from this tiny little clan or this family of some 70 people of Jacob and all of his sons and their wives and sons and daughters and now we have a group of probably one to two million when you count all the people that were in the people of Israel. The Pharaoh felt threatened by all these people and so he Uh, forced them, he inscripted them into hard labor to build that magnificent ancient world that we see even remnants of today in Egypt. So the people of Israel are in bondage in Egypt. They're crying out to God and help, and God hears their prayer, and he raises up his servant Moses to go back into Egypt and to bring them into the promised land. Listen to the words of Exodus chapter 6. God says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them, listen, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So God says he will redeem them. He will pull them out of slavery or bondage and he's going to do it with great signs and wonders and miracles. Of course, we know there were 10 plagues. That God sent and then He divided the Red Sea with yet another great act of judgment and power. In New Testament times, a redemption price was often paid to free a person from slavery. And we can forget this as we read through the New Testament that there were some middle class, there were some upper class, but the vast majority of the ancient world were very, very low class. Many of them were essentially like peasants. Many of them were actually slaves. They had a hand-to-mouth kind of existence. They didn't have, most of them, 401ks. Most of them didn't have large plantations. Most of them had very, very little. In fact, often they shared their roof with their animals. Maybe the animals were down on the lower level and they lived up on the upper level. But it was a, it was a tough life. And many of the ancient world, probably 30, 40, 50% or possibly even more, were slaves. A lot of people were slaves in the ancient Roman Empire. And it was the dream of every slave that one day they could be free. Many of them were born into slavery and they died in slavery and they never enjoyed a single day of freedom their entire life. But it was the hope and the dream of so many of these slaves that one day maybe, maybe they would be able to save up enough or maybe somebody would take pity on them and they could finally be freed from their slavery. These people would scrape they would struggle, they would save, they would do all that they could and maybe they could pay the purchase price, the ransom, the price of redemption to earn their freedom. Maybe somebody else would take pity upon them or they would work faithfully for so many years and then that owner would pay the ransom price and free them or liberate them from their slavery. We've been so blessed in America. We hope and pray those freedoms continue And even our freedom is not really free, right? We know there's many people before us, our founding fathers that sacrificed for this nation and all of the military that continue to go into harm's way to protect our freedoms. You see, even our freedom continues to come at great expense. And we should be thankful for that. But think about those who never enjoyed freedom at all. Even if we have grown up in one of the greatest nations in history, the United States of America, The reality is that most people in this country are still slaves right now. Most people, even in this country, the land of the free, the home of the brave, most are still slaves at this moment. You say, well, how are they slaves? Well, they may not be slaves to a literal landowner. They may not be slaves as prisoners of war in another country. Those things sadly still happen There's a human trafficking industry which is absolutely wicked and evil in the eyes of God and it needs to stop. But I'm talking about another kind of slavery here. You see, most people at this moment are living in slavery to sin. And every single one of us were born into the slave trade of sin. All of us, according to Romans chapter six, were once prisoners to sin. Have you trusted in Christ? If you've trusted in the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then Christ has the keys and he has paid the price to unlock you from the bondage of sin. But if you're here this morning or you're watching us online and you've not put your personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, do you know what? You're actually a slave this morning. And you may not have even woken up realizing that. If you haven't trusted in Jesus and repented of your sins, then you are still, at this moment, a slave to sin. And the Bible tells us that over and over ago. You are, again, you are under the control and the deception of sin. And do you know what sin does to you? It uses you. It exploits you. It controls you. It deceives you. Sin is like salt water that the more you drink, the what? The thirstier you get. Sin is like a bow constrictor or a python. The more you try and wrestle free from its grip, the tighter it begins to squeeze all around you. It is a cruel master. It allures and tempts, but it never satisfies. Radio talk show host Paul Harvey, he once explained an old Eskimo tale of how to kill a wolf how Eskimos would kill wolves, and I haven't verified this, but I would not be surprised if this is true. He says, first, the Eskimo will take a knife blade and will cut, uh, will coat the, the knife blade with animal blood and then allow that blade to freeze and harden, and then they'll do it again. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade pointing up, but not visible at all because it has been coated with several layers of frozen blood. He says when a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting fresh, frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is now bare and there's no ice between the tongue of the wolf and the sharp blade of the knife feverishly now harder and harder the wolf licks the blade in the arctic night so great becomes his craving for blood that the wolf does not notice the razor sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue nor does he recognize the instant at which his thirst is now being satisfied by his own blood the appetite craves more and more until paul harvey says the dawn finds him dead in the snow And that is what sin does. People aren't free to live in sin and enjoy sin and do whatever they want, whatever feels good. They are in captivity and bondage to sin. And if you have not trusted in Christ, be honest with yourself this morning because God sees right through you and you need deliverance from the wages and from the bondage of sin. But praise be to God that here in this passage, we are told there is a way to be freed from sin, from our trespasses. It says we have redemption through his, what? Blood, through his blood. You see, you and I, like the wolf, we may keep licking and licking and licking and are never satisfied, and it's our own blood that's killing us. But in this case, it's Christ's blood. It's his sacrifice that was laid down for us to free us. From our bondage and our sin. It is through Christ's blood that the purchase price has been paid so that we can be delivered or redeemed out of the slave trade and the wages of sin. First Peter chapter 1 says, You were ransomed from the futile ways, the empty, meaningless ways that were inherited from your forefathers. How were you ransomed, you wonder? Well, Peter goes on and he says, Not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. You know, it's not what's in your pocketbook. It's not what, it's it's in your bank account. It's not how much you have, what you own. That's not what you're redeemed with, he's saying here, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, it was with Christ's own blood that he was willing to lay down his life and pay the redemption so you could be freed from the guilt and consequences of your sin. It's no wonder that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 20, describing himself, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what he was willing to do out of his love for you, out of his love for God the Father, who put this plan into motion. Well, Paul goes on to explain the gift of redemption in other terms as well. He describes it as forgiveness in verse 7. The forgiveness of our trespasses. You see, God has also put up no trespassing signs. It's called the law. And the law tells us that there are things we are not to do. We are not to violate. We are not to take the Lord's name in vain. We are not to put any other God before him. We are to keep God's day holy and set apart and honor our father and mother and we're not to bear false witness and we're not to commit adultery and we're not to covet and all these different laws are like boundaries or fences and when we violate those laws we are trespassing in an area that God has said is off limits. How do we undo the damage of our trespassing? We need forgiveness. We need forgiveness and forgiveness comes through the blood of Christ, according to the riches of his grace. Forgiveness is hard. If you've ever been hurt, and I know you have, if you've ever been mistreated, and I know many of you have, you know how hard it is to turn the other cheek. This is hard for three-year-olds. It doesn't get any easier for 93-year-olds. Forgiveness is just hard. And in the flesh, we don't want to forgive. We want to hold a grudge. We want to nurse that grudge. We want to pay people back and let them know how much they hurt us. But the Bible says that's not what we're to do as Christians. The Bible says that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. We're going to see that later on in the book of Ephesians of how we are to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven us. So Christ's forgiveness of you becomes the standard of how much you need to be willing to forgive other people. Peter says, how many times do I have to forgive other people for what they've done? Seven times? And he's thinking, I'm going to be really generous today. I'm willing to forgive somebody seven. And Jesus says, oh no, 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 70 times seven. You see, you keep on forgiving. You keep on forgiving because whatever people owe against you, it doesn't hold a candle to what you've done against God. Your sin against God is infinitely greater And yet if he was willing to forgive us through the blood and sacrifice of his son, we are to forgive one another. How does this forgiveness happen? Well, it says here in verse 7 that it is according to the riches of his grace. And he lavished these riches on us in all wisdom and insight. You see, all of this happened, all these blessings of election and adoption and redemption and forgiveness, this heaping up of blessing, all of this has happened according to the riches of God's grace. That is, God's infinite grace becomes the measuring cup for our redemption. He's not stingy. He doesn't hold back. He doesn't give you just a little bit of forgiveness. He lavishes you with his forgiveness and his love. He's given you what was most precious of all when he gave you his one and only son. And why would he do all of this? Because of his love, because of his goodness, because he chose you and adopted you. And that invitation is freely available to whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord. You can be saved and you can experience this new gift of life. It is freely available to all of you this morning. He chose you, he adopted you, he loved you, he redeems you, he forgives you, but there's something more. God is moving towards some great purpose in redemptive history. And we see this in verses nine and 10. It brings us to our second point. Not only do we see God's generous gift, but we also see God's perfect plan. God's perfect plan. It says that as God is lavishing on us, His love and all wisdom and insight, He is making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Notice here in verse 9 that it says, God is making known the mystery of His will. And Paul uses this phrase mystery a number of times. In both Ephesians and Colossians, which were written very closely to each other. The mystery in the New Testament, the mystery is referring to something which was previously hidden. Something that was previously unknown. On Christmas morning, boys and girls, you wake up and you go to what? The Christmas tree, right? And under the Christmas tree are some presents. And in just a short amount of time, you hope it's not very long, Mommy and Daddy are going to wake up. And they're going to let you open those presents. And what was once hidden is now going to be seen and enjoyed. And that's what a mystery is. It's something that was previously wrapped up. Something which was hidden for all the ages before. But now it has been opened up and unveiled for us to see the reality. And what is the mystery? The mystery is the gospel. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ which is available to both Jew and to Gentile. And that God is opening up the story of how he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins and will unite everything together in Christ. That was once hidden. That was once unknown or it was only given in, in, in a very seed form, but now it has been unveiled and unfolded so that all can see the mystery of God's will the gospel. I've been recently watching the Hobbit movies with my kids, and there's a scene in there where all the dwarves are heading toward the Lonely Mountain. They're trying to get back to their ancient treasure trove, and they come to this forest called Mirkwood, which is a sick and a gloomy place. And the further that the dwarves get into the forest of Mirkwood, Mirkwood, the tireder they get and the more confused and disoriented they get and they start to feel sick and woozy and it almost looks like they're just going to fall over and die right there. But then Bilbo has an idea to climb up one of the trees and get up to the very top where he can see over all of the forest of Murkwood and can regain his senses. He goes up to the top and all of a sudden, whereas it was dark and gloomy, And sickly down below, the air is fresh and the sun is warm when he gets up above the treetops. And he looks out and he sees the lonely mountain. And he says, even to the dwarves that are down below, he says, oh, now I know where we are. We're almost there. Friends, if I could just encourage you for a moment, we're in a sick world right now. And we can all feel gloomy and discouraged, but let's just shimmy up for a moment and look at the big picture and realize we know exactly where we are and we're exactly where God wants us to be. So bear with me for the next five to 10 minutes and I wanna give you a cosmic perspective of what God is doing, okay? Put your problems in perspective because God is at work and everything is happening according to his perfect plan. Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter one that God made you and me to know him, worship him, and rule with him. This is the king of kings and lord of lords that says to human beings, I want you to rule with me and have dominion with me. This is described in Genesis chapter one. God created man and woman in his own image. He blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. God, the king, is telling us that we have the privilege of ruling under his lordship, ruling with him as co-regents, ruling with him as we honor him and recognize he is God and we are not, but we are made in his image so that we can reflect his glory and so that we can enjoy enjoy the creation that he has made. Well, of course, you know that the Bible says Adam and Eve sinned against God, but God would not give up on us. God revealed very soon that he had a rescue plan and that one of the main people he would use to accomplish this plan was a man named Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham and says, Abraham, go to the place that I will show you, which is a reference to Israel. And he says, there I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is incredible. This is after the curse of sin, when God says, if you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Within 10 chapters, God is saying, I'm gonna bless the entire earth through you and your offspring. See, God is doing something amazing here. He says he is setting in motion a plan of redemption, and Abraham is there to begin this. And as you read on through Genesis and you go further into the Bible, we discover that it's not just through Abraham, but now it's narrowed down through his son Isaac. And then it's not just through Isaac, but it's through his son Jacob. And then it's not just through Jacob, but it's through, it's his, through his son Judah and through the tribe of Judah that some kind of ruler is going to come who's going to rule over God's kingdom. We come all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 7, and God establishes a covenant with David, who is of the offspring of Judah. God says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. God is saying that he is going to set up a house that will be a royal dynasty coming from the offspring of David. When David's sons would sin, God would punish them. When David's sons, the kings of Israel, would obey, God would bless them, and he would bless those that were under his care and under his lordship. And ultimately, we know that this is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. He becomes the son of David, the branch of the root of Jesse, who is the one that will establish the kingdom and bring peace and blessing over this world. Fast forward 400 years. We go to a dark time in Israel's history where they are exiled into Babylon for their sin. But God gives Daniel a vision in Daniel chapter 2. The vision lays out the rest of human history in very vivid imagery. In fact, there's this vision of a statue. You remember that? There's this vision of a statue and the statue has a number of unique features. The head is made out of fine, pure, radiant gold. The chest is made and the arms are made out of silver. The middle and the thighs are made out of bronze. The legs are made out of iron and it says that the feet are made partly out of iron and partly out of clay. Well, Daniel interprets this vision for the king, and as we read through the book of Daniel, and as we connect it with things that took place in history, we discover that the head of gold represents the nation of Babylon, which was rich and wealthy, but it was very, very short, and then it was destroyed. It was replaced by the kingdom of Persia, which is signified by the chest and arms of silver. And then it was eventually replaced. Remember Alexander the Great who comes marching through? He is the leader of Greece. And Greece quickly splits up, represented by the middle and the thighs of bronze. And, and then eventually Greece is supplanted by Rome, which is the legs of iron. And, and then we have this season of feet partly of iron and partly of clay, that there are times of strength and there are times of weakness. And that essentially describes the present day that we live in from the time of Rome all the way until the return of Christ. There's a time of brokenness. There's a time where there are moments of strength and wealth, but there are also times of weakness and poverty. But then it says that the stone that struck the image becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. And this, my friends, is a description of the final stage of God's plan. All of those earthly kingdoms have been replaced. Then we come to the feet and they're going to be smashed by a rock. And the rock is none other than Jesus Christ. Christ will pummel and destroy with a rod of iron and he will rule over this world as king of kings and Lord of Lords. And God says in Daniel chapter two, that he is sovereign over all the events of human history. He is sovereign over 2020. He is sovereign over your life and your problems. Listen, Daniel chapter two, verse 21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. We move forward and we see the arrival of this rock in the New Testament. And Paul describes in Galatians chapter four, and notice again how God is sovereign over time. It says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It was exactly in the predetermined moment that God would send his son, who was from Abraham and who was from Isaac and from Jacob and from Judah and from David. Now Christ comes in the fullness of time to redeem those who were under the law. Even his death was foreordained and planned according to the purpose and the counsel of God's will. Romans chapter five says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter says this was no freak accident. God had planned this before creation that Christ was gonna come and you permitted him to die and you were responsible for that, but God was ultimately sovereignly working everything together for his plan, his purposes. Well, we know that Christ right now is presently in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. He says he's preparing a place for us that where he is, we can be also, but his return is also going to happen at the perfect moment, according to God's predetermined plan. Acts chapter three says, heaven must receive Christ until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You see, he's there, but he's only there until the time comes to restore all things that God had spoken. There is still a future restoration of Israel that God has promised. And he who promised is faithful. And in the perfect time, he will accomplish all that he has promised. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples ask Jesus after the resurrection, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know the time. It's not for you to know the time. He says over in the gospels that no one knows the time except the Father who is in heaven. But at that time, when Christ returns and restores all things, then Ephesians 1 will be fulfilled. It says that as a plan for the fullness of time, God will unite all things together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. This word to unite all things is a rare word. It means to sum up or bind everything together. It only appears one other time in the New Testament, Romans 13, 9 where it says that all the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, they are summed up or they are united together in this one word. You know what it is? Love. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, love the Lord your God. Yes, It is summed up, it is united together in love. All the commandments will in a similar way, but in a greater way, everything in heaven, everything on earth will be summed up and will be under the headship of Jesus Christ. Literally means to head up all things in Christ who will rule over all. Something similar is said as Colossians 1 where Paul says Christ is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the first one that rose up in the resurrection on Easter morning that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. You hear the similarity between Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1? Don't miss that. They were written almost at the same time. He, he may have literally been writing both letters before they were mailed out and had them side-by-side side comparing notes and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, choosing which each audience needed to hear. But they were very, very closely related as brother letters uh, written to different churches. Christ is the bonding agent that holds the entire universe and all of history together. Ultimately, the earthly kingdom of Christ will conclude at the end of what Revelation 20 describes as a millennium, a thousand years. It will conclude with the destruction of this present earth and a new heavens and a new earth will be created and Christ will forever be supreme to the glory of God the Father. Christ's reign will be sweeping. It will be all-encompassing and then it will be presented to his father as a gift of honor and worship. It's as though the prince is showing his father the gift and the rulership and the stewardship which he has had, and it gives glory to the father, the king. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, listen to this. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, that's you and me by the way, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death itself. You see, at the end of time, even death itself will uh, will be destroyed and then there will be a new heavens and a new earth And Christ will continue to rule. We will be there with him. We will rule with him. And Christ will present this very kingdom as a gift and an honor and homage to his father. That's the cosmic plan from Genesis to Revelation. And at the center of it all is the person of Jesus Christ. We are blessed to be minor supporting roles in this great story. But make no mistake, you and I are not what history is about Christ is what history is about. Christ is the focus from the beginning to the end, and we are beneficiaries of this great plan of redemption. Christ is the purpose for which we were made. He is the lover of our souls. He is the object of our affection. He is the finisher of our faith. Christ is the fountain of our life. He is the deliverer from death. He is the captain of the Lord's army, and he is the prince of peace. When is this going to take place? the fullness of the times to unite all things in him. There is a date set, but only God knows that date. We're not to speculate about that date. We're not to fight about that date. We don't know the date. Are we getting close? Yes, we are. Every day we know we're getting closer to that date. We know we're closer today than we were yesterday, right? We don't know when that date is, but we know we're closer to it. We know that Christ's return is more imminent now than it has ever been in human history. Even in the days of Paul and Peter and John, they anticipated and they longed for and they prayed for the return of Christ. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. We are to be praying, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. In the fullness of time, unite all things in yourself. But meanwhile, we persevere, we press on, and we keep our problems in Perspective. As we close, listen to this quote by John Stott. He says, how blinkered is our vision in comparison with his. How small is our mind? How narrow are our horizons? We easily slip into a preoccupation with our own petty little affairs. But we need to see time in the light of eternity and our present privileges and obligations in the light of our past election and our future perfection. Let me read that sentence again. We need to see time in the light of eternity and our present privileges and obligations, that is what God has blessed you with and what he has commanded you to do in light of our past election and our future perfection. Then if we shared the apostle's perspective, John Stott says, we would all share in his praise. Yes, that should be our prayer. Help us, Lord, to see time and light of eternity. Thanks for listening to this week's broadcast of Feed My Sheep, a ministry of Crossview Bible Church in Yucca Valley. For more information, please visit www.crossviewyucca.org. We'd love to have you come and visit us this Sunday. We're located on Onaga Trail, just a half mile west of Yucca Valley High School. God bless and have a great week.